Here today on Graceful Truth, our teacher and pastor returns us to the book of Philippians. We're focusing in on the five marks of a true believer. Care to know what they are? Well, join us as we continue our study in Philippians next on this edition of Graceful Truth. Depart from me because I never knew you. Now, those are sobering words from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the Gospels. And those are serious words that many at the end of the age will actually hear when all along they thought they were really Christians. So what does make up the marks of a true believer in Christ? Well, if you care to know, join us for this edition of Graceful Truth from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We're continuing our look at Philippians chapter 3 today, verses 1 through 3. This is where we find five marks of a true believer. Here's Pastor Steve Converse now to continue our series on this edition of Graceful Truth. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision or the true circumcision who worship God in the spirit rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh now I just want us to remember that um, as we've been looking through this portion of scripture we've been looking at it from kind of a, the point of view of what are the marks of a true believer because especially today in America and, and even in the world it seems that everybody's so-called a Christian. And now we come to verse 3 where it really points out for us very succinctly in three little points um, what a true believer is. The five marks were the first one was they, they rejoice in the Lord in verse 1. Secondly, they practice some form of discernment. True believers do. And then 3, 4, and 5 we'll look at today. But last week we looked at five characteristics of that, that somebody may have or may hold on to but they don't verify your salvation. And those five things, just in review real quickly, five characteristics that do not verify real salvation is, first of all, a hope based on a past event. In other words, something that you're holding on to in your life and, and at one point maybe you walked down an aisle or you raised a hand or you said a prayer or you did something like that and that's all you got. God hasn't worked in your life since then. If somebody comes up to you and says, are you a Christian? Your answer is, well, yes, I am. And, you, and they say, well, why do you think you're a Christian? You say, well, you know, I raised my hand one time in a service and I committed myself to the Lord. Secondly, we looked at the superficial moral life. In other words, you're living a moral life on the outside. That doesn't make you necessarily a Christian. There's a lot of good people in the world that live moral lives that are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Third thing we looked at just quickly was the knowledge of the facts of the gospel. How many times have you run into somebody and boy, they can, they can tell you the gospel just like you can tell them. And they know it all, but they know it all up here. They don't have it in their heart. It hasn't made a change in their life. And so they're holding on to their knowledge of scripture. They can quote verses, they can do all sorts of you know, things. But that knowledge alone, just because you know about Christ, just because you maybe you were raised in a Christian home, and you know the facts of the gospel, that does not transform someone's heart. It's, it's God that has to transform the heart from the inside. The fourth thing we looked at was an evidence of religious activity. 
We kind of spent a little time there. In other words, you come to church, maybe you got baptized, maybe you say rosary beads, maybe you do all sorts of religious activity. That doesn't mean you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you're a true Christian. Anybody can do religious activity. You look at the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They were totally caught up in religious activity. But he called their works wide evil. And then the fifth thing, even service in the name of Christ. You may be even rendering service in the name of Christ for, 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 for him. In other words, you know, you could be, I've heard a lot of, a, a lot of different things about pastors, you know, they're serving Christ and then one day they get saved. You know, I mean, that's, sometimes that's the way it is. They get so caught up in the service aspect of it, they think that somehow by serving the Lord, they're earning some credit with God. And that's just not the way it works. And so he comes to this point here in verse 3, and he says, For we are the circumcision, or the true circumcision, as opposed to the false. And remember, there's a thread throughout the New Testament that explains what the gospel is. It, it kind of shares the gospel with us over and over. The gospels, acts, the epistles, all through the New Testament, the gospel's presented. And right alongside of that presentation of the gospel, there's also kind of some a line that's drawn to say, well, who is a true believer in the gospel and who isn't? And so here, Paul is just kind of continuing that. And he says, we are the true circumcision. In other words, what he's saying to them, you remember what circumcision was. Circumcision was an outward uh, sign, an outward mark of an inward change, of a need of it for an inward change. And the Jews, unfortunately, they held on to that outward mark. And they thought, okay, I'm circumcised physically. That's all that matters. And that's not what circumcision was about. But they lifted that, that procedure up to, to mean that somehow if you were circumcised, you were more in favor with God than somebody who wasn't. And what Paul is saying here is that, you know what? Those guys who do circumcision just because they think that somehow by being circumcised, they're earning favor with God. That's who he's referring to in verse 2 when he calls them the mutilation. <laughs> he says they're not just circumcised. They're, they're mutilating themselves. It doesn't mean anything. There's no spiritual significance to it. Circumcision is an outward mark of an inward change. And so when Paul says there, we are the true circumcision, he's saying we are truly cleansed. That God has truly done a work in our heart, as opposed to the false. You stop and think about it. All the things we talked about last week were all outward things. Religious activity, past events, morality, living a moral life. All those things are good. Don't get me wrong. But if you're holding on to any of those things, hoping that somehow if you do all those things right, then you're going to be saved. You're not trusting in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not trusting in the gift that he so freely gave us. And so Paul says, we're the true circumcision, not just cleansed on the outside by surgery, but we're cleansed on the inside by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he continues this contrast here between the false and the true. One commentator said that, in this, this one book that he referred to, and I'm going to read part of, of the book this morning. It was by Matthew Mead, and it was called The Almost Christian Discovered. The Almost Christian Discovered. Now, the interesting thing about this book, it was written in 1661. So if you think, well, why are you preaching on this? You know, this must be a real problem in churches today. It's always been a problem. The church has always had to be on guard for those who would, would come in and, and claim to be a Christian. 
claim to be a true worshiper of Christ and yet not having any new life, not having any transformation. And this Puritan puts it in a, in a very interesting way. So this, this concern has been going on from the time of Jesus. Jesus had the same concern as, as we, we read in uh, John 4 this morning. But here's what he says, and it's kind of just all boiled down here. But quoting this, this uh, Matthew Mead out of his book, The Almost Christian Discovered, he says, A man may have much knowledge about Christ and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may have a great in, in gift, yet be almost a Christian. A man may have a high profession of religion. He may be much in external duties of goodness, and yet be almost a Christian. He may go far in opposing his own sin, and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may hate sin, and yet be almost a Christian. A man may be, make great vows of promise and strong purposes and resolutions against his sin and yet almost be a Christian. A man may maintain a strife and a combat against sin and yet be almost a Christian. A man may be a member of the church, talking to the local body of believers, and yet be almost a Christian. A man may have great hopes of heaven and yet be almost a Christian. A man may, under visible changes, alter life, his own life, and yet be almost a Christian. A man may be very zealous in matters of religion and yet be almost a Christian. A man may be much in prayers and yet be almost a Christian. A man may even suffer for Christ's sake and be almost a Christian. A man may outwardly obey the commandments and yet be almost a Christian. A man may even perform external worship yet be almost a Christian. A man may have faith and yet be but almost a Christian. Now, if you were to reverse that list and read it back, and you just kind of pick up on some of those points, someone who has a great gift, someone who professes true religion, someone who does good duties, all those things has faith, you might say, well, that's got to be a Christian. That's what a Christian is. And what his point was, you know what, you can have all those things, but you know what, they're not enough. That's not enough. What's the evidence? What's the evidence? What's the mark of a true Christian? Well, that's where we're here in verse 3. That's what we're going to look at this morning. These three things that we're going to finish off this, this third verse with, they have nothing to do with your outward conduct. They have nothing to do with your outward profession, your outward goodness. They have nothing to do with your church membership. They have nothing to do with religious duties you may perform on a regular basis. They have nothing to do with external professions that you may make. They have nothing to do with even the fact that you may not like sin in the world. You might not even like sin in your own life. See, because they have to do with what's on the inside, these three things. They have to do with character, the, the part of you that nobody sees except God. The first thing that we want to look at this morning, one of the marks of a true Christian, is a true Christian is one who worships in or by the Spirit of God. Pretty simple. One who worships in or by the Spirit of God. That's what he says there. For we are the true circumcision. And then he says, who worship God in what? Spirit. Who worship God in spirit. So say, we worship God supernaturally, not in the natural world. His worship that's pleasing to him is generated by the Spirit of God, not by the flesh. Not by our own will. Not by some ceremonies that we go through 
or some ritual or some moral code. That's, that's not how we worship God. He's a worshiper of God who, who worships with his spirit, the Bible says. And if you're a true believer, you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you. I mean, if you stop and think about it, the world is filled with people who worship. It really is. I mean, it's, it's probably one of the biggest Christian business ventures today. The aspect of worship music. and I mean, you've got all sorts of stuff going on. And it's all useful. I'm not saying it's bad stuff. But see, we have to stop and we have to say, what does true worship look like? If worship isn't prompted by the Holy Spirit that's residing within you, then it's not pleasing to God. It's that simple. A lot of the worship we see today is prompted by culture. It's prompted by tradition. It's prompted by guilt. It's prompted even by fear at times. It's prompted by the desire of a group to be accepted somehow. It's prompted by so you can look self-righteous. It's prompted by a desire to be a popular person. It can be prompted by a lot of different things. But only true worship that pleases God, only true worship, is that which is prompted by the Holy Spirit of God that dwells within us as believers. See, we're the ones who are called to worship God in spirit and in truth. So that makes it the first mark of someone who's a true Christian, is, is they're able to worship God in spirit and in truth. The word worship, just a little bit this morning. It's the first quality that marks the true believer here, or the, the third in our list, but I mean one of the, 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 the first inward qualities. Turn back to, to John 4. We read that this morning. I just want us to re-look at that. As we read this morning, John is, or Jesus is confronting this Samaritan woman, and she discovered that he knows a lot more about her life than a lot of other people do. He, she began to realize there must be something special about this individual. And she said he must be a prophet. He must be from God. And he told her all about her life and her immorality and everything. And in verse 19, she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. In other words, there's something different about you. And so he knows that he's sent from God. Now she knows that he's got some form of supernatural link up with the Almighty to know this information. That he, that he just shared with her about herself. And so she knows that he represents and speaks for God just because of the, of the situation, what we saw. And she wants to know about worship. Now, she's a Samaritan woman. And it, even as she said there, she was surprised that Jesus as a Jew would even address her. And you have to understand the, the kind of the, the culture and the background here. The, the Samaritans set up their worship place on Mount Gerizim. And they were basically, what Samaritans were, they were half-breeds. They were half Gentile, half Jew. And so they weren't allowed to just go into the temples and worship with the other uh, folks uh, of Israel. They, they had to set up their own little deal because they were excluded. They were rejected because they wanted to maintain the purity of the line and all this. And they were really despised by the Jews. And they weren't given access to the temple in Jerusalem. And so as a result of that, they still wanted to worship. And so they said, hey, we'll go set up our own temple on Mount Gerizim, and that's what they did. Now, they didn't have all scripture either. They only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so they were really kind of dealing with misinformation. They didn't have all the, all the information they needed to worship God properly. And so they kind of created this hybrid kind of worship that they thought was fine. And they worship on their own mountain according to their own rules and their own regulations. And she says there in verse 20, if you look at it, 
Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and you say, the Jews, that in Jerusalem you should worship. In other words, he's saying, well, what about, what do we do? I mean, obviously you're from God. You told me all this stuff that nobody else knows about me. So I'm going to ask you this question. It's been a while. What place do you worship in? You're a prophet of God. I've been confused by this. This has been on my, my heart to ask somebody. You seem like you would know. She's really saying, you know what? I want to do this the right way. I want to worship God in the right way. And you've showed me some things in my life that, yeah, I haven't led the best life. And so I want to make sure I get things right. And I'm going to start with worship. And in verse 21, Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you shall worship the Father. What's he saying? He's simply saying, you know what? Very soon there's going to come time. It's not going to matter where you worship. It's going to be irrelevant. And that time has arrived. It's not an issue of geography. It's an issue of spirit. It's an issue of the Holy Spirit residing within you. And so what he's saying to her is, is basically that, you know what? When it comes to worship, worship should be a way of life. Worship should be a way of life in, in the totality and the way we live. And it wasn't long after he spoke those words that the, Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem happened and the temple was destroyed anyway. And they couldn't worship there. And so he's simply pointing out to her that worship is something on the inside. It's not a place. See, a lot of times we think we come here to this place to worship God. And yeah, worship goes on, hopefully, in this place. But this isn't some special place. This, you know, we could worship in a barn. You could worship in your, in your bathroom, in your shower. You can, you know, worship in your basement. You can worship on top of a mountain. I remember one time, I wasn't part of this church, but I knew the youth pastor who was, and they wanted, on Easter morning, they wanted to not have church at the church building. But they wanted to go up on a mountain and have not only a sunrise service, but have all their services up there. And the people in the church came unglued. I mean, they just went ballistic on this poor guy. And he's thinking, you know, community outreach, this would be great. No, we have to be in the church. That's where the people of God gather, you know. And it was this major thing. The guy almost lost his job over it because they were so caught up in a building, in a place, in an address. And so he says, you know what? Worship is something that happens on the inside. It's not about a place. It's not about things on the external. And the second thing he says about worship is in verse 22. He says, you worship what you do not know. In other words, her worship really was an ignorant worship. She didn't have all the facts. They only accepted the Pentateuch, and therefore they were limited to their understanding not only of the Old Testament and you know anything else that had been revealed. They, they didn't have a complete picture of it. And so they developed their own form of worship. And they thought, hey, we're doing the right thing. And a lot of paganism got mixed in with their form of worship. And so he says very clearly, first of all, I want to make sure that you understand worship is not about a place. And secondly, it's in the spirit. And worship is done in a way that is in according with God's truth. See, today we live in a, in a society that has a lot of self-styled worship. In other words, you know, as long as it feels good, you can do whatever you want in worship. doesn't matter. I mean, you know, there's so many things that go on in the name of worship today within Christianity. It's so shameful. And why is that? Because they're worshiping in ignorance. Because somebody said, oh, yeah, you know, um, you know, one way you can worship God is laughing. 
The gift of laughing. Just start laughing. And you have whole meetings of people who all they do is gather together and they have holy laughter meetings. I mean, you laugh, it's true. And it's sad. And yet they think, hey, this is, you know, this is part of... Show me in the Bible. Show me. Chapter, verse. Show me. Where you're called to bark like a dog or do some of these other crazy things that people do today. It's not there. You know, not that we shouldn't be free in our worship. You know, I mean, we're a pretty conservative church, but, you know, we're trying to always kind of push the envelope that way to allow people to have a little more freedom in their worship. But we also, along with that freedom, want to maintain some semblance of order. We don't want it to turn into some kind of crazy meeting on Sunday mornings. And see, a lot of times we think, well, you know, you just kind of do worship however is right for you. No, God has given us very clearly in his word the way worship should be done. And that's what he says. He says, you don't go out and concoct your own style of worship. That's not what it's about. And he says in verse 22, we worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, God brought us revelation. The writers of the, the, the scripture were Jewish. And the Jews were given the scripture, the oracles of God. That's what Paul says in Romans 3, chapter 9. And so the Jews had the truth in scripture. The Samaritans didn't have it. And so they were practicing, they were worshiping in ignorance. And the time was coming when there wouldn't be the place to worship. It didn't matter. But the worship was to be in spirit and in truth. That's the essence of worship. That's who you are. There's a lot of people who go to a church building to worship. doesn't matter if it's Temple Beth Jacob down here on the street on Saturday. They gather because they don't have a, a necessarily a, you know, a Jewish uh, temple anymore. So they have synagogues. So they gather together and they worship there. And then, you know, you have Buddhist places and you have all sorts of different people and they're all gathering to worship. But you don't go somewhere to worship God. Worship is a way of life. And that's where we got to be honest with ourselves and say, how do I look at that? Is, is worship a way of my life? Do I wake up throughout the middle of the week on a Tuesday when I don't even go to church with a worshipful heart? Or do I just reserve that segment of my life for the church, for the four walls? I go there and that's where I do my worship. And then when I go to my job, well, they see somebody totally different. But that's okay. Because I have all my little life compartmentalized and, you know, you don't want any to bleed over because that could be bad for business or whatever. You know, that's not the way it should be. We're to worship according to the truth that God has given us. Now he says in verse 23 in John there, an hour is coming and now is with my arrival. In other words, I'm here. <laughs> this is it. When true worshipers, notice he says that. So there's people who worship falsely. But the true worshipers shall worship Father, the Father in spirit and truth. And then look at what he says. For, the, for such people the Father seeks to be what? His worshipers. Why did God save you? God saved you so that you could be a worshiper of him. You could be a true worshiper. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. See, God saved us so that we could worship him. That's the truest sense of what a real Christian is. It's a worshiper. That's why in, in Philippians 3.3, 3, when he talks about the true circumcision, he says, first of all, it's those who worship the spirit of God. And if you're worshiping in the Spirit of God, how are you going to worship? You're going to worship in spirit and in truth. That's the way it works. In other words, a true worshiper would worship God from the inside according to the Word of God. 
Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.